You're listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The 2023 New York Encounter just wrapped up, and we'd like to thank the over 400 volunteers who came to New York to help make it possible. We also want to thank everyone who made a financial contribution to the New York Encounter this year. And if you haven't, it's not too late. You can always head to newyorkencounter.org donate and contribute today. What is man? As is known, the first great fundamental text about man is to be found in the story of Genesis. 
the story of creation, where the creation of man is presented with that special solemnity, a creation in which God does not only speak a word of power, but even describes the mystery of man. He lets man come into being within his own dialogue with himself. Thus, man, so to speak, is from then on already integrated into God's inner soliloquy. This is again confirmed when it is said that man is created in God's likeness as an image of him. And the fundamental idea appears in Psalm 8, in which man is presented as the paradoxical being that is actually so miserable, so insignificant, that one is surprised at the fact that God should look after him. This experience challenges us today in the infinitely changing universe in such a way that we discover man really as a completely insignificant particle of dust in an immeasurable world. And we ask, how could it be that God's theater revolves around man? Which naive anthropocentrism lies behind a desire to make this miserable particle of dust on the tiny point called Earth the center of God's creation and God's action? We are not the first ones to experience this. The prayer in the Old Testament was also challenged by it. He also knows man as a worm that already by the time it rises, fades. And thus one cannot actually understand that he would be worthy of God's concern. Yet the psalmist experiences man at the same time as a paradoxical being, which in the midst of its quantitative insignificance has something by means of wit, which it immeasurably outshines quantitative magnitudes, so that at the same time it can be said, yet you have made him a little lower than the angels. We could affirm, therefore, that this is the first great statement. Man as man is an image of God. Good evening. We wanted to open the encounter, as always, with something beautiful and meaningful. That's why the choir sang Rachmaninoff's Bogorodice, which is Rachmaninoff's Hail Mary. And that's why we picked words from Pope Benedict XVI, and it's to him that we want to dedicate this opening conversation centered on one single question which I ask all our panelists. Looking at Pope Benedict's life, what are you grateful for at a personal level and from a cultural point of view? And I invite you to warmly welcome our guests, His Eminence Cardinal O'Malley, Archbishop of Boston, and a very dear and precious friend of the encounter, Father Alex Zentofer, Rector of St. Benedict Cathedral, Evansville, Indiana, Stephen Brown, Senior Vice Provost for Academic Administration and Dean of Graduate Stu Studies at the Catholic University of America, 
and His, his Excellency Stephen Reicha, Bishop of Birmingham, Alabama, another dear and precious friend of the encounter. So, <laughs> thanks for being here. <clears throat> Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The New York Encounter is a three-day cultural event that takes place every President's Day weekend in Manhattan. Every year, we bring together speakers, put on exhibits, and host musical shows, offering opportunities for education, dialogue, and friendship. Following St. Paul's suggestion to test everything and retain what is good, the Encounter aims to discover, affirm, and offer to everyone truly human expressions of the desire for truth, beauty, and justice. To learn more about the New York Encounter, visit newyorkencounter.org. I had a plan how to run this uh, first conversation, but it was ruled out by the speakers. So they will come to the podium, and uh, so I invite Cardinal O'Malley to come and share his thoughts. Thank you very much. It's a great privilege to be here tonight, and uh, I was so lucky to be able to attend Pope Benedict's funeral, listen to Pope Francis's beautiful homily, see the thousands and thousands of people there to bid farewell to our great Pope Benedict. And after the Mass, I was able to go to the convent where he had lived to personally thank Archbishop Genswein and the Memoris Domini for the wonderful care that they had taken of Pope Benedict during so many years. And I first met uh, Pope Benedict almost 40 years ago when I was named a bishop. And I was in an unusual situation because I participated in two bishops' conferences in the West Indies and in the United States. So uh, I had twice as many uh, unlimited visits as bishops usually have, <laughs> two every five years instead of one. And, uh, but the highlight of our visits were always our meetings with Cardinal Ratzinger. He was one of the most brilliant theological minds I had ever met. And the media characterizations of him as the Panzer Cardinal are laughable. He was the gentlest, kindness, kindest, most considerate, priestly individual that you could ever imagine. I was privileged to hear him speak on so many occasions. I loved reading his books, and it was a joy to be in his presence. In 2005, the Franciscan Sisters of the Eucharist were organizing a retreat for their entire uh, community, and they were going to have it uh, in Rome. They got in a retreat house there, and they contacted me and asked if I would be willing to preach this retreat to them with another preacher. And I said, fine, I'd be happy to. They were Franciscans after all, and uh, I felt a certain obligation. But after I consented to be a part of the retreat, it was revealed to me that the other preacher was going to be Cardinal Ratzinger. Needless to say, I was quite intimidated. 
and I wondered if the sister had invited me to be the comic relief in, <laughs> in between the brilliant discourses of the church's premier theologian. As it turned out, even before I reached an agreement with Cardinal Ratzinger on what topics I would deal with in my talks and what topics he would preach on, Pope St. John Paul II died. Hence, I ended up giving the retreat by myself. Of course, I told the sisters that some people would do anything to get out of giving them a retreat, <laughs> even getting elected pope. And probably because of a sense of guilt for leaving me alone with the sisters, and certainly because he did not hear my lousy retreat conferences, Pope Benedict named me a cardinal at his first consistory. <laughs> Being an Irish infiltrator in the Bavarian American province of Capuchins, I also had a special relationship with Pope Benedict, who was very close to our friars, and born in Bavaria, right near the wonderful Capuchin uh, monasteries where St. Conrad of Partsen lived and the famous uh, Marian shrine of Altating. And my last visit there before to have the ordination of a young German Capuchin, I stayed in our monastery in the very cell where Benedict always stayed when he visited uh, and over the door, of course, they had his coat of arms, and the room was very much like a simple friar's cell, except that in one corner there was a harpsichord. <laughs> At the holidays, I always sent Pope Benedict a large box of Mozart Kugel, the pistachio marzipan and nugget covered with dark chocolate and wrapped with a picture to, of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Benedict sent me books. It was <laughs> I was very touched when Pope Benedict published in a book of remembrance a letter that I wrote to him after his brother's death. As I saw the letter, I had to laugh because I spent hours redacting this letter, the text, and seeking help with the German and so forth. And Benedict, on the other hand, could extemporaneously dictate entire chapters of a book of theology that would be ready for publishing virtually without corrections or redactions. Benedict was a great theologian who not only knew a lot about God, but more importantly, he knew God. To use the phrase coined by von Balthasar, Ratzinger's theology was Canaan de Theologie, theology on the knees, theology learned in prayer and communion with God. In reading Pope Benedict's spiritual testament published after his death, I was struck by seeing that overwhelming sentiment of gratitude. He repeats his thanks over and over again, his thanks for his beautiful family, for his beautiful home in the Bavarian foothills of the Alps and for the beauty of the faith. The Via Pulchritudinus is an important path in Pope Benedict's life. Certainly his appreciation for Mozart and Beethoven and beautiful liturgical music of the church's tradition reinforced his sense of the divine and the presence of God in his life. In his first words as Pope, 
Benedict describes himself in the following terms. He says, after the great John Paul II, the cardinals have elected me, a simple, humble laborer in the vineyard of the Lord. Behind the simplicity and humility, we come to glimpse his deep spirituality and amazing theological mind, as well as the capacity to communicate the great truths of the faith with cogency and clarity. He was a great preacher, a great teacher in the classroom, and, it, and we know how devoted his students were to him and how they would gather yearly to reflect on the great truths of the faith. Benedict was always close to communion liberation, and he often repeated the same ideas that we read about in Father Giussani's, particularly in a very clear stating that Christianity is not just an idea or a moral code, however sublime, but an encounter, a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Jesus is not a figure from the distant past to whom the church makes perfunctory references, but rather the living Lord who is the very source of our lives. We live and move and have our being in the body whose head is Christ. As Kierkegaard used to say, we are Christ's contemporaries. In his very moving homily at Monsignor Giussani's funeral, the then Cardinal Ratzinger states that John, Don Giussani, with his fearless and unfailing faith, knew that the encounter with Christ remained central because whoever does not give God gives too little. And whoever does not give God, whoever does not make people find God in the fact of Christ, does not build but destroys. In Deus Caritas Est, Pope Benedict says, we have come to believe in God's love. In these words, the Christian can express the fundamental decision of one's life. Being Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, but the encounter with an event, a person, which gives life a new horizon and decisive direction. St. John's Gospel describes that event in these words, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should have eternal life. The Pope goes on to say, since God has first loved us, love is now no longer a mere command. It's a response to the gift of love with which God draws near to us. During the pontificate of Pope Benedict, it was heard often, people went to Rome to see John Paul II and went to Rome to hear Benedict XVI. Many scholars claim that Benedict's homilies represent the finest papal homilies since Leo the Great and Gregory the Great. They are accessible to all in the, deep, in the depth of their insight and the vividness of their imagery. These homilies will inspire people for generations to come. And I have no doubt that a hundred years from now, people will be reading them in the breviary. In addition to his preaching, Pope Benedict's two volumes on Jesus of Nazareth have made an incredible contribution to the life of the church. It's not just a matter of his fine scholarly research. In these writings, Benedict is animated by a deep, 
pastoral concern, realizing that some contemporary scholars have raised doubts in people's minds regarding the reliability of the knowledge of Jesus. The Pope recognizes how perilous this is. Benedict writes in the introduction, this is a dramatic situation for faith because its point of reference is being placed in doubt. Intimate relationship with Jesus in which everything depends is in danger of clutching at thin air. As one scholar pointed out, like Luke in the prologue of his gospel addressed to Theophilus, Benedict writes so that Christians may know the truth concerning the things they have been taught. For Benedict, it's all about friendship with Jesus. Friendship with the Lord is at the heart of his prayer life and it animates his ministry. Benedict also has that great capacity for showing how faith and reason complement each other. They're not enemies. To me, his ad address to the British Parliament at Westminster Hall, the very place where St. Thomas More was condemned and his speech to the German Bundestag reveal Benedict's deep understanding of contemporary culture with all its strengths and weaknesses. In London, he reminded the leadership and intelligentsia of Britain, the world of reason and the world of faith, the world of secular rationality and the world of religious belief need one another and should not be afraid to enter into profound and ongoing dialogue for the good of civilization. It was on that historic trip to England that Pope Benedict beatified John Henry Cardinal Newman, one of the great influences on his thought and in his own thought. Benedict was a great gift to the church. And as Cardinal Scola talks about in his book, Betting on Freedom, John Paul II said he could not be Pope without Benedict XVI. Some people say Benedict's reign was very short, but his influence even before his pope, he was named Pope was so great and his influence going forward will certainly be great. In a couple of years, 2025, we will be celebrating a new holy year. It will be the year of the Pilgrims of Hope. And I know that Benedict's spiritual testament, which stands in such a firm invitation to live the faith will give us an opportunity once again to relaunch Spe Salvi. Like Peter urges us, Benedict shared always the reasons for his hope and he enriched all of us with those reasons and with the example, the goodness and the holiness of his life. Thank you. Thank you, Cardinal O'Malley, Father Alex. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> I, uh, last night I saw Phantom with some of my friends, and there was a scene in Phantom that, uh, as soon as it happened, I, I thought, um, this is it. This is the, the, the point that really strikes me about Pope Benedict. 
spoiler alert, everybody dies in the end. But there's a scene where Raoul's standing on this bridge and he's getting ready to jump into this mist below. And uh, there's this kind of anticipation and, and finally he, uh, he leaps and then he disappears into the stage uh, underneath him. And when I saw that, and there was this kind of gasp, you know, around, and, and when I saw it, it struck me that this is what Pope Benedict saw. He saw this, uh, this reality that was so deep, so profound, so multidimensional. It's like he was able to look at life and he was able to see so much more than what I could see. And every time I read him, I would always think, how did I not see that before? Well, sometimes I thought there's no way I could have seen that before. Because he was just so, so brilliant in his way of accessing those levels of reality that so often we take for granted. Because so often, I, I can say for myself, I, I watch the play and it's, and it's nice. Then there's a nice plot and it's one thing to another and it's kind of on the surface and there's, you know, there's drama to it. But, but his way of looking at reality was a way of seeing everything, seeing somehow, recognizing that there were stagehands underneath, that there was an orchestra, that there was so much else going on at the same time that, that I wasn't able to witness myself. And so for that reason, personally, I'm, I'm really grateful for uh, his person and for his writings because they, they allowed me to really just see things in a, in a completely new way. And, and I think in many ways it was his uh, childlike uh, demeanor that, that put him in front of reality in that way. He had this, it seems to me, a kind of simplicity that didn't, um, didn't mind allowing being kind of overwhelmed by this wonder that was in front of him, that, that didn't mind being captured by the unforeseen. Uh, as the, His Eminence was saying, uh, uh, this new horizon and decisive direction, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't just a, a new perspective on the horizon, it was a new horizon. I remember in 2006, he spoke of the resurrection as the greatest mutation in human history. Like this is a new, this man is thinking of life in a way that I have never thought about it. And he, he was thinking of it in that way because of this wonder that he constantly had in front of reality, this wonder of being bowled over by the, the wonder of the mystery that was continually unfolding in front of him. And so I'm grateful uh, to that. As a pastor, pers I'm grateful for his uh, for all the homily material that he provided for me over the years. He was a real treasure, I think, for, for so many in the church. Uh, but sincerely, as a priest, I have to say, his willingness, uh, his obedience to the church was a tremendous gift to me. Because in the end, when he recognized that uh, that to continue serving as Pope would not be the greatest gift to the church. That in some way he needed to step away is not something that we, I think myself, but I think many clergy uh, deal with well. Like many of us would want to say, I'm going to do it. 
And we say, if the bishop tells me to do it, then I'm going to do it no matter what, even if I'm harming the people that I'm serving. And I think there was a great, for me, there was a tremendous freedom in seeing our Holy Father say, the church needs someone else in this moment, and it's not me. I mean, this is a man of uncomparable achievements, a brilliance that was just unfathomable. And yet he says, it's not me. And I think for, my, for me, that was, a, that was just a, a tremendous gift just to, to witness his, his simplicity and his obedience and his hum, hum, humility in, in, in the face of that decision. And so I'm grateful, most of all, for his, his wonder and the way that he awoke that wonder in me to, to keep looking at this, this tremendous depth that is given to us each day in, in, in the uh, unfathomable gift of reality. Thank you, Father Alex, Professor Stephen Brown. Thank, thank you, Rito. So this question we've been asked this evening is in some sense an impossible task to answer this question. In my opinion, Pope Benedict XVI and his writings and teachings will be read and studied for thousands of years. He is, in my opinion, a thinker who comes along only every several hundred years. One simply needs to open almost at random and read any of his books, letters, speeches, homilies, encyclicals, and the like to answer the question we have been posed. His writings and teachings are both at once accessible to someone like me, I'm an engineer, and yet at the same time culturally and theologically profound in a way that very few in the history of humankind have ever been. In attempting to sketch a very brief, incomplete answer to the question posed this evening, I would like to tell you about a personal work of love that I undertook back in 2011. I work at the Catholic University of America, and when the then new and now recently retired President John Garvey was being inaugurated, he asked me and five of my colleagues to respond to the question, what does faith have to do with the intellectual life? While it may seem obvious that this question is of interest to those of us working and teaching in Catholic universities, I believe this question is a crucial an urgent one for anyone working in a university, secular or Catholic, or any religious, religious affiliation for that matter, it is a question that was pondered in a profound way by Pope Benedict. In attempting to respond to John Garvey's question, I began to read what Pope Benedict had to say on the relationship between faith and reason. In fact, I have been a very amateur reader of Benedict Ratzinger since the time when I first read the introduction to his introduction to Christianity some 30 years ago. It blew me away. If you have never read it, you should. So in preparing to answer John Garvey's question, it was natural that I began to systematically gather every address that Pope Benedict delivered in a university context since the beginning of his pontificate. Everything from his more famous ones that his eminence mentioned some of them, but also his address at Regensburg, the one he was delivered at La Sapienza, the one he delivered at my own university, the Catholic University of America in 2008, to less famous ones, such as when he led rosaries with the students of, of universities in Rome. As I was carrying out this work, I began to understand that the university's contribution is always both educational and cultural. 
And thus, I also decided, decided to gather some texts not specifically addressed to university audiences, but which contain tasks integral to universities, such as those contained in his speech to the world of culture in Paris, his address to the Bundestag, his address to artists, and the like. The collection of texts I pulled together were eventually published as a book by the Catholic University of America Press in May 2013, shortly after his resignation from the papacy. The book, thus providentially, is inclusive of his entire pontificate. I eventually gave the book the title, A Reason Open to God. In doing so, I tried to hint at one of the major themes of Pope Benedict as priest, pastor, scholar, and bishop, namely, in openness to God as God. Our friend Dr. Schindler, who passed away in November, spoke at a Crossroads event in, in D.C. in 2008 before Pope Benedict visited the United States. Dr. Schindler said, for Benedict, for God to be God, he must matter always and everywhere. And for Benedict, reason is capacity for God, and freedom is being for God and for the other. Thus, to be a man or a woman, my, my understanding is this is the theme of the New York Encounter this year, is to be for another, that is to love the other. Cardinal Ratzinger addresses this very nicely in the text that was read to begin this evening's event. It is from a talk he gave in 1968 entitled, What is Man? In the conclusion of that address, he said that the message of Christ crucified is that the salvation of man takes place when he is ready to become the second Adam. That is, when he replaces egoism and self-assertion with donation. That is, when one gives oneself to another. This is why Jesus is interesting for Benedict. Since God no longer remains a God who is a far away, non-personal God, but rather a God of love. In fact, I think his very last recorded words, Lord, I love you, somehow synthetically captures what animated his entire life his yes to the love of God. And for Benedict, the love of God is encountered in his son. Just think of what he wrote in his very first volume of Jesus of Nazareth. He wrote, what did Jesus actually bring, if not world peace, universal prosperity, and a better world? What has he brought? The answer is very simple, God. It is only because of our hardness of heart that we think this is too little. Returning quickly to the book I pulled together, while I wish I had time to go through each text with you, I will limit my remarks to point out only three nuggets in these addresses. First, what is this hardening of heart? For Benedict, it is not a moral problem, but is it a problem of our concept of reason? So the very first quote comes from his address at Regensburg when he said, what is needed is a broadening of reason and its application. And if reason for Benedict is the capacity for God, and if for God to be God, he must matter always and everywhere, what is the consequence of an impoverished reason? That is one which is not broadened. That is one that is, one that is not open to God. It is simply that man does not know himself and is no longer free. As we'll see in this next quote from his speech to the world of culture in Paris in 2008, this positivistic reduction has grave consequences for us and for our culture. He said, 
the present absence of God is silently besieged by the question concerning him. Quarere Deum, to seek God and to let oneself be found by him. That is today no less necessary than in former times. A purely positivistic culture which tried to drive the question concerning God into the subjective realm as being unscientific would be the capitulation of reason, the renunciation of its highest possibilities, and hence a disaster for humanity with very grave consequences. The search for God and the readiness to listen to him remains today the basis of any genuine culture. Finally, for Benedict, as we said earlier, reason is capacity for God and freedom is being for God and for the other. And thus for man to be for God implies all of life. It implies entering into the life of the church that comes to man. And in doing so, one's reason and freedom become fully human. We can see this theme of what the life of the church brings to the world in the last quote that I simply must share with you, particularly since I work in a Catholic university. The quote is something that Benedict said at my own university in April of 2008, April 17th, in fact. This quote is something I've been pondering for these last 15 years, and which I dare say I will be pondering for at least another 15 years, and which I believe every Catholic university should ask itself every day. He said, Catholic identity is not about statistics. It's not even about orthodoxy of content. It's making all that you do reverberate within the ecclesial life of faith. With all of what I've said, I've tried to hint at only one aspect of Pope Benedict's thought that I believe will have a lasting impact on us, our society, and our culture for centuries to come. Thank you. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want The Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain The Encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. Thank you, Bishop Riker. Thank you, Riro. And thank you for the opportunity to be part of this extraordinary panel tonight, reflecting on the life and legacy of Pope Benedict XVI and opening up this edition of the 2023 New York Encounter. It sure is good to be back. While I never had the occasion to meet Pope Benedict or Cardinal Ratzinger personally, I do recall seeing him walking across St. Peter's Square presiding at the funeral mass of Pope John Paul II, the mass invoking the Holy Spirit before the conclave that elected him. I believe in moments of reflection through his writings and witness, it is as though I've known him as a spiritual guide all along, even though he probably couldn't pick me out of a lineup if his life depended on it. Yet the way that he personalized and witnessed faith and reason throughout his life, it is as though we came to know something about his heart, the core of life that asks the persistent questions, 
Why does the world exist? Why am I here? What is the purpose and meaning of life, my life? What does it mean to be a Christian and belong to the body of Christ, the church? Perhaps it was his attempt to grapple with that telling question of Jesus to John and Andrew in the first chapter of St. John's Gospel, what are you looking for? And because he was able to sort through these questions and wasn't afraid to do so, he impacted my life in a concrete way as a Christian man, as a priest, and now as a bishop. I cannot think of my life without the input of this man of faith. He took faith so seriously as a response to his encounter with Christ. And because he did so, he was loved by many and was a stumbling block for others. Yet through it all, there was a simplicity, a boundless curiosity, and a joyfulness that is part and parcel of the Christian life. Both popes, John Paul II and Benedict, were molded out of similar life circumstances that were difficult, complex, and unimaginable to us. What they experienced and witnessed would shape their worldview to prepare them for pastoring the body of Christ. Both witnessed the ravages of the Second World War at formative times in their lives. And what they experienced, they could have easily rejected the notion of a benevolent, loving God or even the existence of God. And by the decisions they made in a time of persecution and political turmoil, they both heard more clearly the voice of Christ saying, follow me. They became even more committed to the Sequela Christi, to love the church and freely embrace the mission of Christ through the church. The call of the Lord could never have been clearer to them. Both were true sons of the church. They came to know that their faith was not an add-on to life or a mere adherence to set of propositions. They embodied incarnated Christianity in themselves. Quite literally, they put on Christ and couldn't conceive of their lives without him. It was commonly said, as his eminence referred to, that people came and pilgrims came to Rome to see John Paul, certainly a phenomenon by any measure, but they came to listen to Pope Benedict he had a way to articulate the faith in simple terms that could be understood by anyone. Even his homilies for Holy Week and Easter Vigil provided us priests with a lot to reflect upon, and we did so during the priest retreat every Easter week. Yes, he was a rather shy academic who loved being around books and relished the intellectual give and take of a good argument explaining at deeper levels things like Jesus of Nazareth or truth and tolerance and the liturgy, to name a few. But nevertheless, he rooted everything in Christ and carefully and deliberately articulated a range of Catholic teaching so that one could understand even better the attractiveness of the mystery of Christ, the Word made flesh.
There was something mystical about Pope Benedict. He could advance an erudite argument about some obscure theological point, and then in the next breath, talk about, in simple declarative sentences, each of us is willed, each of us is loved, each of us is necessary, the theme of this opening session. How simple and personal faith became. Even observing him at Father Giussani's funeral in February 2005 was something quite remarkable, especially how he was able to synthesize the life of uh, the founder of the movement of communion liberation that inspires this event, down to a memorable thought. Thus, from the start, Giussani was touched, or better, wounded by the desire for beauty. It wasn't any mundane thing but the beauty that is Christ himself. And through it, he affirmed the fact of Christianity as an encounter with Christ, a new love story, he called it. Pope Benedict also concluded that faith is culture and creates culture, and that both faith and our own historical culture, which it doesn't destroy, live together that we live in two cultures, one exemplified by the body of Christ and the other of our own heritage. Contemplating my own reactions about Pope Benedict, his life and legacy, could we not say that here was a man wounded by reason or wounded by truth? Yet in the same breath, he could talk about love in his encyclicals, Deus Caritas Est and Caritas in Veritate, and hope in Space Alvi with such endearing terms. For me, the end of his life, which he lived in a Joseph-like silence, as it is purported to have occurred, best sums up his legacy for me. Of all the words that are chronicled in books and in speeches and homilies, the best synthesis of this man was in his final breath in which he is purported to have said, Lord, I love you. Like Simon Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, it was Peter's simple profession of faith that resonates even to this day and was the very foundation of his life. And as the successor of Peter, I imagine the same thing happening on the shore of eternity. Yes, even with a fish roasting on the fire, welcoming Joseph Ratzinger. Joseph, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Thank you very much. We will give them another round of applause at the end of the act, because there's a final touch to this uh, conversation in company uh, in the company of Benedict the Sixteenth, and it's the closing encounter that a friend of us um, had with Pope Benedict. So I invite Maestro Christopher Vath 
to come over here, tell us the story, and surprise us with something. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you and good evening. So uh, I have to set up my story by telling you two facts. One fact was that uh, when Pope Benedict was elected in April, he chose uh, to be in his part of his household staff a dear friend of mine who lived in New, in New York years before and we had become very close. Fact number one. Fact number two is that in May of that same year, so one month later, I played a piano recital in Carnegie Hall, in Wild uh, Hall in Carnegie Hall. So I have a friend now in the Vatican and I just played a, a concert in a, in a major hall. So <clears throat> enter woman number two. Italian woman number two in New York, who comes up to me shortly after my concert. Chris, you should play, you should play for Pope, Pope Benedict. I said, great, give me a phone, I'll call him right now. <laughs> you know. But you know what, I, I, even though I had grown up in a household of, with five females, I, I always forget the resolve of women. When they, you know, when they have something on their mind. So within a few days, there were emails going back and forth from New York to Italy. There were phone calls, and it ends, it ends up where I'm on the phone weeks later, and I'm saying, okay, I can come to Italy on these dates in August. And, and she says, my friend who's in, in the Vatican says, um, he's got his brother, um, his brother is visiting. Pope Benedict's brother is visiting during those days, so I don't think it's gonna happen, Chris, but I'll ask anyway, I'll, I'll see. So what happens, she asks, and we're all expecting this is not gonna happen, what does he say? Oh, my brother's a musician, we'd love to have, we'd love to have your friend come, tell him to come. So <clears throat> for those of you who don't know, his brother, also a priest, he's deceased now, um, was a very famous conductor of the Regensburg uh, cathedral choir. Think Vienna Choir Boys, that, that sort of level. And, and my friend told me, please, Pope Benedict really loves and esteems his brother, so be sure you listen to recordings and you know something about the brother. <laughs> so I'm on Amazon getting CDs delivered and I'm, I'm listening and, and so I know. So in the, in the interim, we're, we're working out details. Um, you're requested to speak in Italian. It's like, wow, not my, not my forte. Um, you can, uh, and the Pope would like you to stay for dinner. And so I said, great. And, um, and so we're thinking, <laughs> and so we're thinking, um, I'm thinking, what, what am I gonna play? I, and I had all this repertoire ready that I just played in Carnegie Hall. So I, I knew it was gonna come from there. And so I'm talking to her and I'm saying, I did Shostakovich, and, and we sort of think 20th century Russian music doesn't sound like something Pope Benedict would like. <laughs> and uh, I had no Mozart, which is what he really loves, and so we settled on a Bach piece that was a transcription of an organ work, so surely both Ratzinger brothers knew that work very well. So I played that, I played a movement, part of a Schubert sonata that again, I'm sure they were very familiar with, and I, and I ended with Chopin. So what happens is I am this sort of, there's an episode that I'm 
exposed as the clueless American in Europe at this time. So we go, again, my New York friend, one of the resolute women, uh, is with me. We're going to go to Castel Gondolfo, which is the, uh, it's a castle in this small, you know, medieval town outside of Rome. And, you know, come at such and such a time, we get there, we get there almost an hour early, 45 minutes, and I think, oh, it's a castle. I'm going to drive up to the back. We're going to drive up to the back. We're going to tell the Swiss guards, Chris Vath's here. I'm playing for the Pope. You know, the drawbridge, drawbridge is going to go down. We're going to drive over the moat and into the, you know, the thing, into the courtyard where the cars are. And so we drive up to the, we drive up to the castle, and the Swiss guards are saying, get out, get out, you shouldn't be here. And I said, but I'm playing for the, get out, yeah, get out. And so we said, oh, no. So anyway, we end up driving. Now we have to find parking. And again, these are medieval towns with roads. Many of you know the roads are this wide. <laughs> and so we get stuck behind a truck. And then when you write a turn, and then you're stuck in traffic. And the, so the clock is ticking away, ticking, ticking, ticking. 30 minutes, 25 minutes, and the castle is right there. It's in a plaza in the, in the center of the, the square, but we can't, we can't stop the car. To, we can't get back. We, we, each turn takes you another you know, three or four turns. And so finally, and we're texting, and my friend in the Vatican is getting very nervous. Anyway, so we get there. We're late, and so we're running across the plaza. Christine is outside just beside herself. I can't believe you're late for the Pope. The Pope came downstairs. He's waiting for you and you weren't here. And so, I'm just, so I walk in and I'm, you can imagine, I'm just totally frazzled. And he's there smiling. Welcome, Chris, nice to meet you. And he said, okay, here's the piano. It's a beautiful style. And I, I sit down and I'm ready to play. He says, would you like to warm up? But he saw that I was completely, you know, <laughs> just beside myself and I said, no, no, no. Thank you, Your Holiness. I, I can start. I'll play. And so I played the concert, talked a little bit uh, about the pieces, and uh, it went fine. It, it went fine. My, luckily, I, it was something that I had done a lot of that, that concert. So at the end, uh, they want to come up to me, especially the, his brother, who's a, who's a musician. And so he wants to talk. It's shop talk. He wants to talk music with me. And he starts talking to me in German because we had no common languages. And so I just sort of look at the Pope and as you know, like, you know, can you, can you help me out here? And so the Pope starts, <laughs> the Pope starts translating. The Pope speaks perfect English too. So he starts translating for his brother. So we're, we're having a discussion about this Bach, this Bach prelude, this Bach fugue. Uh, via translation of Pope Benedict. So, oh, I didn't tell you that the, the, the concert was for, don't think it was a big audience, it was 10 people. So it was his household staff, his secretary, there was a Polish nun there, another, a Polish priest. Um, and so I was told, and then we went to dinner, and they had told me that unlike other uh, pontiffs, he liked dinners to be really a family affair. It was a family meal. It wasn't, he didn't use that to, to have, uh, you know, uh, state, 
state leaders and stuff coming during dinner. No, dinner was for the, for the family. So it was a fairly simple dinner. With, it was 10 people around the table talking about, I told them I had seen him when he gave a talk in New York uh, years before, and there was a lot of protests. It was in, against, against him. He said, oh, yes, I remember that. And, you know, and just it was simple to talk about you know, the, the communal liberation in New York, what I did for, you know, in music, so it was very, it was very simple and very, very sweet. Uh, at the end, after about an hour, he said, "Chris, please excuse me, I, uh, but I have to go." He takes a walk in the evening, so and then I think he wa he was watching the news, the, the eleven o'clock news. So he said, "We're going to have to uh, leave you now, but thank you for coming, and we enjoyed the the concert." He and his brother got up to leave, and he says, "Have you ever seen? Have you ever been to Castel Gandolfo?" I said, no, Your Holiness, I have not. <laughs> I'm not gonna. Christina, take him around on a tour. Okay, goodbye, Chris. Thank you very much for coming, and and that was it. So it was a beautiful, it was a beautiful evening. So that's my story. So I was asked tonight to play something that I played for Pope Benedict. So I will play a Chopin Mazurka in A minor, Opus 17, Number Four. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded, and as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want the Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain the Encounter in its work. Thank you for your support.
Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. We hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please consider posting a review on whatever platform you listen on. Those reviews really help the podcast reach more listeners. If you share the podcast on social media, please tag the New York Encounter. On Twitter, we're at NY Encounter.